Um, I'm so glad that I had some time to get to know um, New Philly and you guys for the past seven or eight weeks now before I'm standing here because, you know, it's, it would make me more nervous to, to be standing in front of a crowd of faces that I don't know. But um, I feel like the past few weeks I've been here, it's been really good to connect with some of you relationally and personally, and I feel like I'm not preaching to a bunch of, you know, uh, strangers, although maybe that day will come when I when God will uh, train me to do that. But just being here and recognizing something makes me feel a little bit more comfortable. So, yeah, I'm thankful for that. Um, yeah, when I was here two years ago as an intern, I never knew I would be standing up here to preach. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's amazing that I could be here and so excited to share some of the things that um, have changed my life from God's word and, and to be able to share that with you. And I really hope that as we look at God's word tonight, it, the authority of what I will say will come really from the conviction of God's word that you see in scripture um, and not just merely from the authority that, that I have standing up here as a preacher. Um, so yeah, before we read our text tonight, can we just pray? Our Father, we just thank you so much that we have the richness of your word. And your word never gets boring. And it never grows old. And it is just so wise and profound that we could spend our whole life pondering over one verse. And God, I just pray that tonight that you would convict your people with your truth. And I pray that what you have revealed to us in scripture would really grip our hearts and that we would be changed. Changed the way you want us to grow. And Father, I pray that I would preach your word the way you want um, to communicate it, God. And I pray that, um, yeah, our people would be edified and blessed by your word. Thank you, God, for giving me this opportunity to communicate uh, your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's turn to Romans chapter 1. If you guys all have your Bibles, I want to be like PC. Y'all should start bringing your Bibles. <laughs> I want to be like PE. You know, the only book I carry in my purse is the Bible, if you know. <laughs> so bring out your Bibles. And let's read from verses 18 through 32. It's kind of a long passage. This is really, um, it's a complex, it's really rich passage. And I know it's kind of late and it's Friday night. But let's try to stay focused, okay? And, and um, yeah, I'll read and you guys can read along with me. So here we go, starting with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory, glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of God. One of the reasons why I love this passage, Romans 1, 18 through 32, is that this had continuous impact in my life as a mature Christian, as I matured as a Christian, um, in the past few years, actually. And it was one of those scriptures that made me kind of pause and think, wait a minute, what? I never knew God said this here. You know, it, it just kept coming back to and over and over. And the way that it changed me specifically is in my relationships with non-Christians, with unbelievers, with my unbelieving friends. And even with friends who are believers, nominal Christians, they go to church, but they don't really, you know, um, they're backsliding, right? They're not fully devoted to God. And the way that this passage really changed me was that I came to have full confidence when I approached them. I wasn't scared that maybe, you know, what I would say might come off the wrong way, that they'll look at me with this blank face and think, what in the world is she talking about? Um, who is God again? What? No, that's just your God. I didn't have those thoughts anymore because what I read in this chapter gave me full confidence that, wow, God actually says that everyone knows him. And we're going to go into it and we're going to look at it more carefully. But as I thought about what would be good to preach, up, preach tonight to New Philly, I thought this would be relevant for you as well, right? Thanksgiving was just around, um, you know, and holidays are coming up, Christmas and the New Year's. And I think for a lot, of, a lot of times we think, oh, that's exciting. And it is. But I think that there's also a population of people for whom those holidays could mean not such, you know, it, it makes them cringe. Because it's a time in their lives where actually families gather you're supposed to meet with families and closest friends. And there are a lot of strained relationships, yeah, in our families. And, and it makes you kind of nervous when the holidays approach because you're, you're thinking, oh, man, I'm supposed to sit there at a family table, you know, for hours. What am I going to say to my dad who might have questions about my, you know, what I'm doing in my life, why I'm, you know, doing full-time ministry or why I'm going on missions. There are all these um, things that make us kind of nervous. And as we're approaching the holiday season, and as I've also encountered some conversations with some of you, I realize this word, I really want to encourage the house with this word because I believe this can challenge you in the way you think about how you approach unbelievers and even nominal Christians, right? Um, so as we read this, verses 18 through 32, the first thing that we see, right? The first thing we see is that everyone knows God. I, I, you know, the Bible doesn't say everyone knows God in plain words. You know, that's just the way that I came up with it. <laughs> but I love my own sentence. I love that <laughs> sentence, all right? Everyone knows God. That is exciting, Right? Everyone knows God. Why is that exciting? It says here, because God is a God who's not silent. Everyone knows God because God has spoken. Everyone knows God because God has revealed. In this context, it says that God has revealed himself in his works, in his creation. That means that God who is invisible, he made himself visible and knowable to us. Verse 20, it says, his Namely, his invisible attributes have been made known to us. Namely, his eternal power and his divine nature. And because he made it known, we're able to perceive them. It's in his creation that we are able to see him. Well, what does that mean? Right, in his creation? In his creation, it's 
Creation is, in, uh, in the original text, it's his works. It says, in whatever God has created. Think of uh, a painter, a painter who paints, right, on a canvas. God is a divine artist who has created this world, and it's his canvas, right? And when we, I don't know if you guys know a lot about, you know, art, about sculpture, or about painting, or, um, you know, whatever it is, but you can actually tell the artist's personality by looking at his or her painting, right? Uh, For instance, well, okay, so I'm not an artist, I'm not a poet, but when I was in the third grade, I wrote, apparently I wrote this poem in one of those grammar school papers, and I wrote something along the lines of, you know, twirling, swirling leaves, falling leaves are so beautiful, they dance, blah, blah, blah. I wrote something like that, and my husband, Paul, he found it in my old room, and he brought it with me, with him to back to New Jersey, it was in California, and he somehow got it in his desk drawer, and I was like, what is that? That looks like my writing, and then he, he just was looking at it, and he was treasuring it, and, and he read it, and I thought that was so funny, because I wrote it in the third grade, and some, actually, I still love leaves, I have this, I have a, a special place in my heart for leaves, and <laughs> I do, right? And Paul read that poem and he was like, you haven't changed. You know, that, that little poem as a third grader kind of still reflected, I guess, of my personality. There's something of, that he saw in that poem, what I, um, something of my heart. Um, I, I don't know if you guys know a Korean drama and it's not the one that just had the finale yesterday. Um, okay. I, I'm pretty sure no one watches it, but, uh, it's called the goddess of fire, uh, uh but, in Korean, it's Pudeyoshin Chongi. But it's about a ceramist in the Joseon Dynasty who kind of makes it. Anyways, it's like in the olden days, right? And I, I love this scene. There's this scene where the prince, prince of Korea, he recognizes um, the ceramist, the female ceramist's uh, pot, or like little cup that she made. And it's not supposed to be located. It wasn't supposed to have been located where he found it. But he's like traveling somewhere and he looks at this cup. And by the way, he really likes her, but he doesn't recognize that he does, but he likes her. Um, but she's kind of, a, you know, she's, she's a female. And in that time, she had no rank. She's a ceramist. And so they, they're not supposed to like each other, but he has a, his heart's very fond of her. So he sees this cup from, from distances from where it, she actually made it. He looks at it and he's able to identify. He thinks that it's actually hers, but he gets it. And he brings it back to like around the palace area. And he says to her, hey, by the way, did you make this? Right? And she, she was like so touched. Like, oh, I heard that this cup was sold or whatever. Or it was stolen. How did you find it? And he says, oh, when I saw it, I knew it was of your work. You know? <laughs> and you know what? I, <laughs> but it's true. When he saw that cup, the way that the texture, it had this genuine authenticity about it. I mean, that was one of her styles of what, the way she created. It wasn't this luxurious um, pottery. Hers had more earthy tone and it was more um, life. You know, it had, it had life in, in the work. And he knew it was hers. And she felt so known by that, you know? The point is that your personality is shown in what you create. And this world, the nature, every, God's glorious attributes have been displayed to us in creation. Even Aristotle, a Greek philosopher who did not know our God and worship God, even him, he said, in all of nature, there is something of the marvelous. See, even him, when he looked at nature, he recognized that the end wasn't just there. There is something marvelous. How many times do you guys drive through, you know, the roads of, you know, in the, in the autumn time when there are trees, beautiful foliage, there's this road and where I'm from, New Jersey, Demarest area, there's this neighborhood where I go running in the autumn and I love running in this neighborhood because when I'm running, I'm worshiping and I'm not kidding. I tell people when I run, I'm worshiping. People think that's worship. That's like torture to me. You know, (laughs) to me, that's like I'm running and I'm so happy because first of all, I feel my heart beating and I know I'm conscious of the fact that I'm alive and I'm so thankful God gave me a healthy heart. But as I'm running, I am so immersed in the beauty of colors 
like orange, yellow, gold, brown. There is not one same leaf. There are no two leaves that ever look identical, ever. And you pick up a leaf, right? I pick up a leaf and I'm looking at it. And I am so amazed by the intricacy of a leaf. Do you guys ever look at a leaf? Like, it just has so many details. If you haven't, try it, right? You're a photographer. You should try it. You need to observe the world, John, through God's eyes. But really, leaves, they're, they're so beautiful. They're, it's intricate. And you can't, I can't look at a leaf and not worship God. I can't look at the amazing trees. You know, when I went rock climbing with Sole and Peter, Jacob, I finally like went up to the top and then they're like, all right, come back down. And I was like, no, I need to turn around and look at the, 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 the nature. I need to look at the mountains and trees. Let me just give me a second. And I was absorbing it. And I realized, wow, God is so good. When God created the world in Genesis, every single time after he created something, he says, and I saw that it was good. Everything God created was good. Amen. And so, yeah, when we look at nature, when we look at trees, when we look at oceans and seas and mountains, we see God. It's a display of God's glory. You know, I talked to a friend of mine, um, a really good friend of mine. She was a med school student. She's now um, doing residency. And, and I had asked her, you know, when you go into your med classes and you take these um, courses and, you know, like surge, surgery or whatever, I don't know what those med terms are called, whatever. But, you know, I asked her, how does, you know, do you have a lot of friends and classmates who believe in God? Like, what, what is, how does faith work in tandem with, you know, with med- medicine? And she told me that actually there are people who go really deep into, into sciences, into physics, or, or, you know, just into physiology. And at a certain level in medicine, students, when they, it's like general studies, and then when they start to specialize and uh, they get into, go into expertise, into surgery or whatever it is, it, they, get, they become, they get to a point where now they realize, wow, this is way too complex. That they actually start to, you would think that that would make them drive more towards science, right? But that actually makes them think this can't be just science. And I was so encouraged when my friend told me that, that she told me that she has a friend who was pursuing um, uh, an eye surgeon or whatever. And the human eye is so complex that at a certain point she had to ask herself, can it really just come down to mere science? You see, intricacies, complexities, our God is a God who shows us his beauty and intricacy through what he has created, through nature. Okay. So why, why does that matter that God is telling us that everyone knows him? Why does that matter? Why should that matter to you and me? See, the way that that changed me, the fact that everyone knows God, that made me realize, hey, Even my seemingly unbelieving friend, when she tells me that she doesn't know God. See, after I really looked at this text, when I have conversations with her, she's telling me, oh, you know, God this, God that. You know, I don't know if I really believe in God. I'm thinking in my head the whole time, but you know God. It's changed my paradigm. See, when, when... when I approach non-believers and my non-believing, my non-believing family member or whoever it is, even a stranger, they tell you that they don't know God. But God, the word of God tells us that he has revealed himself in his works. So everyone knows God. So you see, there's no more fear that cripples me from, want, from wanting to actually share God. There's all the confidence. The confidence doesn't come from me. The confidence doesn't come from what I think I'm going to say. The confidence comes from the truth that God said so, that everyone knows him. See? So it's not really a matter anymore of me trying to come up with this logical proof or some kind of argumentation to prove to my friend, all right, you know, let me tell you, here's the proof. You know, 
here's if A, nah, if B, so therefore A, B, C. You know, it's not coming up with an argument anymore. All I'm doing is just uncovering what they already know. So when I'm talking to someone, here's what's going on in my mind. I'm listening, and I'm gathering, and I'm listening to them, and I think, oh, that shows they already know God. And I'm trying to look for a point of connection where I could, I could make a connection with them. And I ask myself, how do I start peeling off the lies so that they finally get to a place where they do know God? You know, and it's going to take time. But the first place, the starting place is that God has revealed himself. And so therefore everyone does know God, right? What about you? Do you believe, do you actually believe that God says that everyone knows God because of what he has created in nature? Do you believe that? If you believe it firmly in your heart, should that change the way you look at your family members or even friends who are not professing believers or who might be living, you know, a very pagan backsliding life? It should. But I also, but here's a problem, right? It says here in verse 20, for his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, right? And the things that they have been made. So they're without excuse. People have no excuse for saying they don't know God because God says again, that he's made himself known. And by the way, I just want, I do want to highlight something here. The fact that God's creation, God's nature, he has displayed himself ever since the creation tells us a few things. One, it's for everyone, right? It's for everyone and everywhere. People have no excuse for saying, oh, well, I lived, you know, or my grandfather or so-and-so lived, you know, X number of years ago, so you know, they didn't really understand or see the revelation of God. No, because since the creation, God has revealed himself in his works, right? And it also shows that his creation, his revelation is continuous. It's not like the mountains will disappear one day and the trees and all of the things that he's created is going to vanish. I mean, you know, I don't know when the end times come. I don't know who, who knows what that'll look like, right? But in right now, in the present time, as we're all living, everyone, we don't have an excuse for saying we don't know God. Okay. The problem is this. Everyone knows God, but the problem is that everyone suppresses the truth that they know. And instead, we turn to other idols. How do we see this? Look at verse 18. Right? Verse 18. At the end of verse 18, it says... The wrath of God is being is is revealed, okay, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This idea of suppressing the truth, okay, I want you to imagine this, what what it's like. Imagine swimming in a pool or being in a beach and you have a beach ball. Is it hard to, to make the, to hold down the beach ball underneath the water? Unless you're like really strong and you know, you're lifting weights every day. I would imagine that it's, it's pretty hard, right? The idea of suppressing the truth, you're, you're, you're getting a ball in a beach and you're trying to hold it down underneath the water. So it stays underneath the water. You're holding it down. That word suppress, it means you're holding it down. You're shoving it down. This is what we're doing with the knowledge of God. This is what people do. We know the truth, and yet it's like we're holding it down, and we're trying not to come afloat. Do you know how much work it also takes for us to have that ball not float? To keep, to keep it underneath the water, you've got to keep pushing it and pushing it. And that's what it's like for us. With the truth that we know about God, we constantly... We know it, but we have, we have to work so hard not to know God. Okay. Here's an example. I have an example of a friend back in the States. And 
she is an she was or she used to be an aspiring artist okay through all forms of art she at one point she tried to pursue photography then she gave that up she you know she tried to pursue sculpture and she gave that up and then she worked sorry, ended up working for an admin position at an art company but her goal was to be an artist right she Love the idea of becoming a well-renowned artist in New York City more than the truth that she actually wasn't cut out for it. And, and, and I'm not saying this to be mean. I'm just saying she, there is a certain gift that you have, and it's great. You know, like, look, I can write a third-grade poem and say that leaves are falling, but I ain't going to try to enter a poetry competition, you know, with poets who have been trained, right? This, this friend of mine, she's gifted artist. You know, she can draw, she can paint. It's pleasing to the eye. But she really wanted to make a name for herself because she really thought there was something cool about, you know, being artsy, and she wanted her name to be well-known. But everyone around her kind of already knew that she wasn't really made out for that. But she d- suppressed that truth. She loved the idea. She loved the idea of being a renowned artist more than the truth that she wasn't cut for it. But she, you see, <laughs> I'm not being mean. But listen, the point is this. We do this with the knowledge of God. And I want you to get this. When we suppress, we don't just suppress and there's nothing. As we suppress, something gets filled. You see, as she was suppressing the truth that she wasn't maybe cut, she was making up, she was living up this desire she had, which was to be the artist that she wanted to be, right? What we see in this text is that as people are suppressing the truth that they already know about God, Simultaneously, what we're doing is we're exchanging the glory of God for what? What does it say here? For image of mortal man, for creeping things, right? We're exchanging it. We're, while we're suppressing it, now we're exchanging the, more, the glory of God with something else. It's like having a beautiful diamond ring. Authentic. Okay authentic real diamond ring and then exchanging that gem for a little quarter 25 cent diamond ring right in the text here it says everyone exchanged the glory in verse 23 says we're uh verse exchange the glory and in verse 25 it says they exchanged the truth about god for a lie you know what that's like it's like saying Hey, I have a, and I haven't really done this. Okay, it's not a personal example, but I'm saying, hey, I have a real uh, Louis Vuitton bag, but you have a fake one. Let's switch. Let's exchange it. But it's kind of like doing something like that. It's having something good, real, and you're exchanging it for a lie. We have knowledge of God. But we're exchanging the truths that we know about God, the glory of God, with lies. And the Bible says also images of mortal man. Some, right? Um, I don't want us to think that just because we don't have images that we're bowing down to today, or some, you know, we're not bowing down to stones and rocks and, you know, um, like uh, some religions do. That doesn't, that's not the only form of idol worship, is there, is it? But no, there's, um, there's, we continue also, this verse is still relevant for us because there are idols that we still serve and want. We do this. Why? We suppress the truth and we go, we exchange it for something else. Why do we do that? Because we want the control. We we don't want to recognize God. We don't want to recognize that there is a God. Because once we do, what happens? We kind of have to give up the control. Right? And so we go after these idols. What is an idol? If idol is not just this stones and stuff that we bow down to, that Paul is talking about in this context, 
what is it for us today? See, idol is anything that competes with the love for God. Idol are things that consume our hearts and our minds, our thoughts. We become obsessed with it. We become obsessed by it. We become preoccupied by it that in your waking moments, first thing you think about, in your spare moments, where do your thoughts go? Right. That, that's one of the ways that you can test what your idols are. In our culture today, there are so many ways that um, we go after idols. And I believe that we can relate to a lot of the cultural uh, culture idols of self-image. There's wealth. We idolize fame and power and success. We go after all these things. Our identity is wrapped around our jobs, right? All these things give us meaning and identity and security in life. And, and I, I believe that, you know, um, I, I mean, l- let's take comfort, for example, right? And the reason why I, I do want to slow down here a little bit is because we are, you know, New Philly, there's po- God's doing powerful, amazing things, right, in this house. But I want to challenge you today, too, to really ask yourselves, are there idols in your life? And it it can look, it seeps through. It can look in very small ways, but you have to have the eyes to detect detect it. You know, one of the ways that I idolize comfort is, you know, maybe some of you guys can relate. Whether you have housemates, roommates, you know, I obviously have a husband, and right now I'm living with PC and PE and um, Aaron and me, right? But, I mean, this is not me, all right? But when the dishes are getting piled up, right? When dishes are getting piled up, when trash bins are flowing over, why is it that my instinct is to think, oh, I would rather just sit on the couch and watch TV. Somebody else will do it. When somebody else is helping sweeping, you know, and doing this and serving and doing all these kinds of things, why do I not want, why is my instinct not to get up and offer to help? Or sometimes why do I wait until somebody asks me to do it? Why can't I take the initiative to just do it? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It's because we don't want to be bothered. We love to be comfortable. We want to just stay on our couches, right? And we get annoyed. And do you know how you really love your comfort? Is when you get asked to help, your first response is to grumble and be like, you know, like, why now? (laughs) You know, like, I did it last time. Or some of you guys might think, oh, I did it. You're you're calculating. I did it 10 times. I'm going to wait till he does it or she does it, right? Like, oh, why do I always have to do it? If if that's the way you respond, maybe you have to check your heart. What are you really worshiping? Is it your comfort? Because if you aren't worshiping, you would be glad to be able to help your neighbor, to be able to serve them. Right? How about a job? Right? You know, back in the states, when Paul and I told some some of our friends that yeah, there were. There's a group of people from New Philly who are leaving New Philly, leaving Seoul, Korea to go to Sydney. Some of them responded with this like, what? That's crazy. Wait, wait, wait. What are they going to do? You know, that's one of their first questions they would ask. What are they going to do? Are they going to be full-time ministry people for the church? We're like, no, 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 no. They're going to they're gonna leave their jobs and they're going to find jobs there. And they're just blown away by that. And then actually, at one point, I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know either. And and I realized, wow, yeah, they are leaving their jobs. And that's, if, if job was their idol, I don't believe that they could leave Korea to go. I'm not saying that the only reason why you, you know, would... You know, I'm not saying that, okay, well, anyways, all right, so, because, (laughs) because, you know what, if their identity and their value was in what they did, 
for their work because of the money and the fame and whatever. If that had that much greatness in their life, they wouldn't be able to give that up because that's what they feed on. But so many of us, how many of us really find our security and our identity in what we do? You know, I want to speak even to full-time, um, full-time ministry people because I, I want to be guarded now. You know, do you know how tempting it is sometimes when Paul and I were working back in New Jersey and we loved our youth group, but our youth group was small. Our church was small. It was growing. And sometimes I will look at my youth group when they were being, you know, kind of, uh, you know, your average teenager, rebellious, whatever. Sometimes I'd be thinking, God, like, is this, is this, how long are we going to be here? I want to go move on and, you know, I want to, I could have done this with my life. Why am I in this room, like, serving food for these kids, like, right? Why am I doing dishes after them? There's so many times when I felt that. Like, what am I doing with what I've been equipped with and trained with? These kids have no idea who I am. <laughs> you know? They have no idea. If only they knew, they would just respect me and they would sit around me. And, you know, <laughs> like Jesus, you know, <laughs> but seriously, how many of you guys feel that way? You guys feel so trivial, trivial because your work is trivial. But when you place all your identity and value in that importance in that, I'm just saying, Hey, be careful because even missionaries, pastors, we can feel tempted right? To, to make what we do our identity. If, if it's not growing, if I'm not doing something cool and exciting, then my, my, then I'm meaningless. What is your idol? Do you guys know what your hearts long for? what you guys find your value in. You know, some of you guys might thinking, oh, I don't have any of those things that really control me, that rule me. And, and you know what? I might believe one or two of you. <laughs> but here, here, here's a little litmus test. You know what is really cool but also dangerous about pleasures in our lives? You know what? God has given us good things to enjoy. Amen. So you know what? I love shopping. So, so it's okay. <laughs> and I love, you know, I love movies. You know, I love food. I love all those things. And I, I, I'm not sit, standing up here saying, become an ascetic and go to the forest in the woods, right? That's not what God tells us. But the point is, there are innocent pleasures in our lives that we really enjoy. But those things can become idols, do you have any of that in your life? Do you have innocent pleasures that you really enjoy, but maybe they haven't turned into your idol yet? You know what's an example of that? I was kind of surprised. I met, I met a counselee. I was when I was counseling. I was talking to one of my counselees, and you know, she told me that she finds great pleasure in reading romance novels, and she loves watching move, romantic movies. And she was sharing a little bit about it with me. And she told me that in romance novels, she gets really engrossed by the sexual images. Right? And she just enjoys even, even um, the, these seem innocent, right? She says sometimes she goes on, she goes on YouTube clips to watch uh, little clips of um, steps to, I'm not instructing you, okay? But she would go on YouTube clips and look up how to kiss, Right? And she would love watching movies like, for example, I don't know, um, Titanic. Okay, that's an old movie. But, you know, just, just movies where you would see the main actor and the actress kissing and making out. whatever. Because for her, so, so that could be a seemingly, in the outside, people would think, oh, she loves romance novels. She loves movies. But do you know what started happening to her is that that innocent pleasure grew into a form of an idol idolatrous desire her heart started to feed that grew that innocent pleasure of just first reading books and just enjoying the novel for the sake of novels grew into wanting to read romance novels to seeking romance movies and scenes after scenes because 
she started to find that it fed her sexual desires. See how innocent, something so innocent can turn into something big. Even shopping, right? Even for me, sometimes I have to be guarded. There's nothing wrong with, you know, looking at a catalog of, oh, I like this and that and that. But you know what? I can become obsessive. If I'm on a mission, I'm a woman with a mission. If I'm on a mission to find the best thing for a best price or whatever, I will, you know, that innocent pleasure of just shopping will grow into an obsessive thing where constantly I'm thinking about that and that and that and that, you know? And I'm constantly looking around me and thinking, ooh, I like, oh, there's that style. I like that, you know? It's, it, it consumes us. First Peter, it says, um, you know, Satan is like this prowling lion ready to devour you. I love that imagery because you know why in our lives, idols are always lurking and idols are like that rowling lion ready to devour us. But we got to stay vigilant and alert to know what those idols are. So don't sit there and tell me I have nothing in my life that rules over me except God. Praise God if that's true, but I'm saying be guarded. Because Satan is always at work wanting to destroy and bring us down. Amen? Mm. So we see, right, that everyone knows God because God has revealed himself to us in creation. The problem is we suppress the truth that we know by exchanging the glory of God for our idols. So instead of worshiping God, we worship our idols And what is a result? Read with me. Starting with verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then read verse 26 with me. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, And verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The consequence of us knowing God, but suppressing the truth and exchanging the glory of God for our idols is that God is revealing his wrath to us by delivering us over to our sins. Okay, let me slow down there. God, you know how verse 18, it begins by saying, for the wrath of God is being revealed. That word is being revealed. Okay, it's in present tense. That means God's wrath is continuously, presently, it's being revealed to us right now. You might be wondering, what is the wrath of God? God's wrath is being revealed to us? I don't see God's wrath being revealed. I don't see fireballs coming at us like the revelation say it's going to come. I don't see monsters coming up, up from the you know, ground. You might think that's what God's wrath looks like. Yeah? But that's not what Paul is saying here. The wrath of God, let me first make this distinction. We have this cultural influence that makes us to think that the wrath of God is like something like the, the um, form of what we read in the Greek myth, myth, mythology and literature. You know, we think wrath of God is, oh, Dionysus or Zeus, you know, like we, we do something bad and these gods up in the sky somewhere, they start doing thunderlight, thunderbolts, and, you know, they start doing crazy things and that's the wrath of God's being poured out. We might think that's what the wrath of God is. But you see, the wrath of our God is not emotional and it's not capricious. It's not egoistic. Like those of the Greek gods and the mythologies and literature. But our culture makes us to think that the wrath of our God is emotional or, you know, or it's capricious and God does whatever he wants. That's not the wrath of God. See, we know that God has already revealed his wrath to us throughout scripture. We see it from here time to time. Right? He wipes out, you know, when, 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 um, the time of Noah, 
when generations and generations, when they were in sin, we see that God's wrath was poured out by destroying everyone. And he begins all over again with Noah and through the flood, right? We, so we do see God's wrath throughout scripture. And it says that his wrath will be poured out in the judgment day. But right now it's being revealed to us. How? This is how. By giving them over to their sins. We read three uh, main verses. God is revealing his wrath by delivering us over to our sins. Another way to think about delivering them over is thinking about it this way. God is letting us continue in our sin. God's wrath basically means God not intervening. Does that make sense? God is letting us do what we want and by not intervening. So that doesn't, that doesn't mean that God's letting us sin. He's just letting us continue in our sin. And how is that being, and how do we see this? Okay, we see, Apostle Paul gives us some categories for this, right? First thing he says is that he gave them up in the lust of their flesh, of lust of their hearts, impurity. And then he says he gave them up over to their dishonorable passions. And then in verse 28, we see, we see he, he says God gave them up over to their debased mind. Okay. Lustful passions, sexual lust, sexual immorality, and to a debased mind. He, may, he names these three different categories, but here's what's interesting. In verse 24, when he first talks about God delivers them over to, in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, first thing he's talking about is a sexual category, right? It's their, you know, um, he says here, dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, right? And then the second category, when he talks about the dishonorable passions, here he's talking about homosexual acts, homosexual relations, what is not, what is in contrary to the way that God designed us to be. Okay. And then the third thing, when he talks about the debased mind, he's taught, he gives 21 vices. He, he goes on from talking about unrighteousness, right. To envy, rivalry, uh, murder, strife, deceit, and he, and so, and so forth. You know, what's interesting though. I think it's interesting that apostle Paul doesn't just stop at the first time when he says, God gave them up over to the lusts of their hearts and to dis, uh, dishonorable passions. If he had stopped there, the only categories we would have for sins would be basically sexual sins. And I know that this verse here, when it talks about the dishonorable passions, it's a huge text, you know, for the debates about the homosexual, you know, um, dialogue that's going on. And I don't want to go into that because it's very, com- you know, it's, it's for, it's, it's, that could make up another sermon or teaching. But what we do see in this context is that homosexuality gets categorized in the same category of all the other sins, such as rivalry, deceit, malice, slanders, haters of God, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish. All those categories are all categories for how Apostle Paul shows us. This is what sin looks like. This is what our idolatry leads to. So whether it's lust or homosexuality or envy, he doesn't give one more weight than the other. And if you look at this long list, all the way from starting from verse 29, all the way down to 31, right? He gives 21 vices. And some of the ways that he categorizes this is... uh, he begins with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They're just general categories. But after he lists general categories, he starts to talk about things that really talk about human relationships. Look at it carefully. Here he says, murder, strife, deceit, and malice, gossip, and slander. There are no categories of slander. These are things that break up human relationships. And then he, and then he lists categories of pride. He talks about, um, haters of God, haughty, insolent. These are categories for pride, right? 
I want you guys to get this logical progression. See, everyone knows God because God has revealed himself. But the problem is we don't recognize him and we suppress the truth. And we exchange the glory of God. And because we do that, the consequence is God is revealing his wrath by not intervening and letting people continue in their sin. And what do those sins look like? It's all these listings of what we do then. Homosexual acts, rivalry, malice, deceit. Isn't it interesting, though, that this idolatry, us, our choosing not to recognize and worship God, that leads us to continue in our sins. And when we act in these sins, I want... I want you to get this. It doesn't affect just me. It doesn't affect just the individual. It doesn't affect just you. Because sin sin has a power of now breaking in, breaking relationships. And what happens when human relationships are broken? It affects the entire society. There's chaos. There's disorder. You know, the entire book of Judges, there's this line. And I also love this line. Right? In the time of Judges, right? the, the line is, is, everyone did what they, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I, when I read that, I just think, dang, that's like us today. You see an entire tribe go down, spiraling down their entire corruption, moral, social, everything is corrupted because people continue to do what is their, what is right in their own eyes. And this is what's going on even today because we have these idols that we worship. Why do we have, why do we worship idols? Because we choose not to recognize and acknowledge God for who he is. We don't glorify God, nor do we give thanks to him as God. And because we don't do that, we turn to idols and because of idolatry, we sin. And because we sin, relationships are broken. We see families, broken families, broken marriages. Why is there so many divorce? Right? Why is there so many divorce in, in the church? I heard that the population of divorce is going up in the church, like really skyrocketing. And I'm not surprised by that. Even churches, why is it that churches break up and divide? Because of the sin Sin that destroys human relationships. I didn't really, I, I don't know if you're with me. You see, the wrath of God, wrath of God is being revealed to us in our present age now. When you see people in sin and living in sin because they choose not to acknowledge God, that is God giving them over to their sin. That is God abandoning stubborn sinners to continue to act in their willful rebellion and disobedience. That's what's going on. So the wrath of God, do you ever think about the wrath of God when you are thinking about your unbeliever? You know, when I approach my unbeliever, the first thing I think isn't to say to that person, Hey, you need to watch out because God's wrath is pretty scary. That's a turn off, right? I don't do that. But you know, the more and more I read this text, I'm realizing I am so thankful. I am so thankful that there is a way that I have escaped God's wrath. When you read Revelation, you get this scary picture of what the end of times, what the end times will look like. And I am so thankful that I have confidence and assurance of my salvation. See, the only way we can escape the wrath of God, there's only one way. We're not here just to talk about the wrath of God because it wouldn't be the good news if we're here just talking about God's wrath. 
But the only way that we have, we can escape God's wrath, and we didn't read verses 16 and 17 because that, those, that's not the focus of our sermon. But verse 16 and 17, Paul starts off, okay, you can read with me. Paul starts off by saying this. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Why is Apostle Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is a saving power. So what is the, what is the answer to how do we escape the wrath of God? It's the righteousness of God. It is the saving power. That's the only way you and I can escape this wrath. The only way you're an unbelieving friend, my unbelieving friend, my brother and sister, your friends, only ways only way that they can escape this wrath of God, only way that they could come to really fully acknowledge God and give him proper worship is by placing their faith in the saving work of the cross, of what Christ has done. That's the only way. It says that in Romans 8, God has given... He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. God is giving us up over to our sins. But did you know that the Bible tells us God has given up? He has given over his son for us. And it says in Ephesians 5 that Christ loved the church so much he gave himself over for the church. God has given himself over to us through Christ And if you, if you are blessed, if you feel so blessed and moved and you feel special, like, wow, God, I can't believe I, I can escape this wrath. You have given me this saving knowledge of you because of what you did. If you're moved by that, I, I hope that when you're looking across the table at your unbelieving friend, you would have that same hope for that friend. When we go on missions field, right, and when we go back our, to our homes during vacation, some of you guys are traveling back to the States or North America, wherever it is, and you have these opportunities where you can talk to your friends or your family members, remember this. They know God. And all you're doing is helping them come to acknowledge what they know. What they know should be a stepping stone to the knowledge that saves. And I hope that will change the way you think about your relationships. And I hope that your confidence will rest in what God has said. Let's pray. Father, um, Lord, we thank you, God. That it is by the righteousness of God, what we see in the gospel, Lord, it is by the grace that you have given us that we can escape the wrath of God. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in creation. That you're not a God who's silent, Lord. When we walk around in this world, Lord, we're not just looking at beautiful things that you've made. And that's it. But God, when we look at these things, we see you and we worship you. And our hearts are lifted up and it's inclined to worship you. And we thank you so much for that. Lord, we pray today for us, God, that there are any areas in our lives or where we are tempted to exchange the glory of God, the truth of God for an idol, for a lie. Father, we pray that you would convict us right now. And Lord, we pray that the innocent pleasures that we have in our life, if they are on their way 
to making a place in our hearts that shouldn't be there, Father, we pray against the work of the enemy. And we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to sanctify us. Lord, would you give us the confidence as we go out, as we continue to meet our non-Christian friends, our unbelieving family members. Lord, I pray, God, that we would not be hopeless, that we would not be sitting there and asking ourselves, when will they ever come, will they ever come to know God? But Lord, I pray that you would give us all the hope and confidence that they do already know you because you said so. And we are called to help them come to a fuller understanding of who you are through the work of the cross. So God, give us those opportunities and give us wisdom and fill us up with confidence by your word. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.